Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Nick Gosling, Executive Director of the Libertarian Christian Institute, here with board member Doug Stewart and our second guest here on the Libertarian Christian Podcast, Robin Kerner. Uh, Robin gained fame in the liberty movement around the 2012 cycle when he wrote a very famous article on Huffington Post about the Blue Republican. And since then, he has continued to serve in the liberty movement and is now out helping organizations and other libertarians figure out how to better market the message for liberty. This is something that we as libertarians often need but don't know how to do. Thankfully, Robin is an expert in this area, and he will give us some handy tips about how to be better representatives for the liberty movement. But first, we'll find out a little bit about his background. So, Robin, thanks for being with us. Can you tell us kind of uh, where you where you came from leading up to that to that 2011-2012 cycle, uh, your, your political background, and how the Blue Republican movement sort of came to be? Yeah, hey, and thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, this is an important issue, and I'm always glad to talk about it. Yeah, okay, so where did it start for me? Well, I had no interest in politics really at all before about 2010. Um, but I, I did back in 2004-05 start up a website called watchingamerica.com that translates foreign opinion about the United States from all over the world. And I'd been doing that for quite a while. Uh, and it was kind of as a result of that, that I kind of got interested in the American identity a bit. And I was thinking maybe I'd write a book that was inspired by that, but still with no particular interest in American politics per se. But in the course of researching, I guess, for that book, I came across a video by Peter Schiff, one of those Peter Schiff was right videos. And I'm a trained scientist, and this video of Peter Schiff um, ex- predicting the housing crisis, saying why it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and also being kind of almost laughed off the news network that he was on making these predictions. Uh, as a scientist, I was really interested in this because I had never heard economics or politics really approached in a scientific way, by which I mean um, you make testable predictions, specific predictions, based on kind of general principles, and that those predictions are tested, and then, you know, they support a theory if they're proven to be correct. And here was this guy called Peter Schiff, who I'd never heard of, uh, who was doing just that in the realm of economics. So as a trained physicist, that kind of interested me. In this video, he mentioned something called Austrian economics, so I googled that. Um, I read the wiki page, it linked to something called uh, libertarianism, so I checked that wiki page, and I thought, well, this makes a lot of sense. So then I sent an email to a friend of mine who ran a libertarian, who still runs a libertarian nonprofit, and he talked about it sometimes, and I'd shown no interest, but now, as a result of you know Peter Schiff, Austrian economics, and the libertarian wiki page, I was interested, and I said, send me a reading list, please, Glenn. And so he did. 
and uh, you know, a little bit of the canon later, so a bit of Hayek and a bit of Bastiat later, I thought this is something. Um, this is something that resonates with me. And I developed an interest in politics and in liberty. And also being a Brit who was fervently working to become an American, I have a personal history that kind of, in a way, follows the history of the Anglo narrative of liberty. Uh, and so I got interested in my own history. Here I was in, in, in America and I got interested in that part of British history out of which really the constitution came and my new adoptive country came, you know, all those years ago. So I just kind of got excited about all this stuff around uh, 2010. And also around that time, I was given an opportunity to write on the Huffington Post, actually as a result of my being the publisher of watchingamerica.com. And so by the time we got to 2011, I thought, well, you know what, I've got this platform. Um, it's a platform that's a respected brand, respected, you know, among the left. And before I had any interest in politics, I was basically a liberal by default, meaning I was a nice guy. I had good intentions. And so I figured, like, I think a lot of liberals who, um, you know, maybe haven't read some of the stuff that you and I might have read, you think that the better policies and the better politics are those that most directly manifest or instantiate your good intentions, which is a perfectly reasonable common sense point of view. Um, it happens mostly to be wrong, but it's a decent point of view. And I, uh, and so remembering what it was like to be that liberal and having this platform to speak to liberals, I thought I will use that platform to see if I can make the case for Ron Paul, who I was supporting in the 2011-2012 cycle, uh, to, you know, and my progressive friends. And I have been trained in sales. I studied epistemology to a high level, which is really the philosophy of belief and knowledge. Uh, and so I kind of just put all this together. And I've had a classical education, so I can write reasonably well. Um, and I just put all this together and just thought I would take a punt. You know, I didn't expect that anybody would pay any notice to anything I wrote. But it turns out they did. And that Blue Republican article, which was, as I say, advocacy for Ron Paul to the left, was called, If You Love Peace, Become a Blue Republican Just for a Year. And it was targeted at Obama voters, and it went viral within hours of hitting the Huffington Post. And within one or two weeks, uh, I had Doug Weed on the phone, um, the senior advisor to the Ron Paul campaign, who had identified, the campaign had identified that blue Republican, and I, I coined this term to refer to those who switched from the left Democrat Obama over to the GOP specifically for Ron Paul in that cycle. They confirmed to me, the campaign confirmed to me that that was the biggest identified coalition for Ron Paul. And it remained so from that week all the way up, up to the convention. So then I realized, um, I've, A, I've got a skill, and B, this skill is needed, because there is no way some wet behind the ears Brit who basically just discovered liberty should be able to write the article that creates the biggest coalition uh, for you know, a libertarian candidate in what is supposed to be the, one of the most libertarian countries in the world. How is it that the libertarian movement managed to fail to fill the gap that that article uh, filled. So I thought, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. Um, I can help fight for liberty by helping making others better at communicating it. And as you said at the intro, uh, for which thanks, that's what I now do. Right. I remember actually uh, in the in the last cycle, I, I don't remember exactly when it was, like I, I keep saying 2011, 2012, but somewhere around there when, when you first sort of came onto the scene here, I 
I saw your article. I mean, most of us did. In fact, uh, Doug, you had just mentioned earlier that you had several friends who are on the left who voted for Ron Paul because they saw Robin's article. So it was definitely a kind of a, a watershed moment uh, for for the liberty movement in bringing people on the left over at least at least somewhat into a libertarian-esque camp, primarily around the issue of war. And, you know, Murray Rothbard said that war is the most important libertarian issue because, like, like and to quote another individual, Randolph Bourne, most of our listeners have heard the Randolph Bourne quote, war is the health of the state. Mm. Wherever there's war, wherever there's an enemy to be fighting, there's going to be government expansion. That means less civil liberties, less economic freedom, mm. a larger police state. All of these things kind of roll in with, with war. Uh, so by building that coalition around the leftists who at least were consistently pro-peace, which many on the left are not consistently pro-peace, but many of them are. And those who are, you were able to use that, uh, the, that, that affinity in order to, to bring them over to, to vote for Ron Paul, which is really, really fascinating. I remember as a already Ron Paul supporter at that time, in fact, uh, I even bought a Ron Paul uh, yard sign, T-shirt, and so forth. I was really excited about Ron Paul, and then I hear, heard that friends that I kind of saw on the left were into this Blue Republican movement, and I thought, wow, that's that's really that's really exciting. Does the time you spend arguing for liberty, do you tend to spend more time with those who are on the left, who are more like where you came from, or do you find yourself sort of, you know, kind of stuck in the middle, in kind of an even split? You know, it's hard to say because I actually spend quite a lot of time speaking to <laughs> folks who you'd identify more on the right. Um, so maybe conservative, conservatarian, conservative, libertarian, because they are the people that more often come to me to get to, to, to kind of get taught how to speak to their friends on the left. So a lot of what I'm doing is actually, um, on the one hand, yeah, I do spend time formulating the ideas of liberty in the language of the left. And we can talk about, you know, that in this show. But also, um, I'm, I often get folks more on the right to kind of examine themselves uh, to be a little more humble about the way in which they maintain their libertarianism or their political views more generally. Because if I can open the mind of folks on the right a little, then it I think it helps them accept what I'm teaching them about persuading the folks on the left. So, so really, it, it's kind of both. Whereas I'm selling liberty more directly to folks on the left, I'm selling the selling of liberty, if that makes sense, more to folks who are, tend to be more conservative. I, I think that's fair. I think that's a good approach because, you know, there's a lot of tension between the left and the right, and they sometimes kind of get stuck in their own kind of groove of arguing. And those on the right tend to have a hard time identifying with the values and passions of those who are on the left. And if you can't even identify with those on the other side, you, you really can't make, you can make your argument, but it's really only to hone your argument. It's not really to win anybody over. That's right. And I, you know, in my branding, if you go to robinkerner.com, you see I've got a tagline, winning supporters, not arguments. And people are so invested in winning arguments. They set up an opposition where they only get to be right if the other person's, you know, kind of admits to being wrong. It's kind of a zero-sum game. And um, not only does nobody, not only are you never, you're never going to win that. Um, but it just ignores so much of human nature uh, and and so much, 
you know, especially recently, there's been so much study on um, well, kind of psychology and moral psychology in particular, that really we should all be grown up enough now to know that you have a choice. You can either actually be invested in winning the supporter and, and therefore extending the reach of liberty, or you can have an ego trip and come away from the argument knowing that you won it, but making actually no difference for liberty in our country. And, and a lot of that, as I say, is getting people out of their own way. Um, persuasion really starts with oneself. It's kind of, it, it can be an introspective process at the beginning. And, and you mentioned the word um, identify with, I think you said, or something like that. And, and that speaks to part of this, which is all politics really are the politics of identity. And I don't mean by that, are you a woman or are you black or are you white? I don't mean that kind of politics of identity. I mean the idea of, uh, can I identify with the person who's telling me this thing? Because 80% of persuasion, at least, is having the person you're talking to identify with you, meaning I basically trust where this person's coming from, their worldview, their intention. So instead of my subconscious mind being primed to find reasons not to believe or agree, believe what he's telling me or agree with him, my subconscious mind actually wants to find reasons to agree. All reasoning is motivated, pretty much. So you've got to get the motivation of the reasoning of the person that you're trying to persuade going in your direction. And that's a lot more about empathy. It's a lot more about uh, relationship and a lot less about actually having a debate, which is a completely different process. So, Robin, one of the questions I have, when I think back on my own journey towards libertarianism, I, I came from... A, a very strongly neoconservative bent um, many, many years ago. And sort of what started to move me away from that uh, was with the tactics that I guess you could would say were, were rather aggressive, kind of in-your-face um, approaches. In the articles I was reading and in the thinkers I was reading, uh, they, they weren't necessarily nice about it. Um, and at, at first that made me very angry. Like, I mean, I thought, oh, this is this is horrible. These people hate America or, you know, what, whatever. Ultimately, I came around. Um, so I, and I know there's, there's other people who have kind of come from that same way, but, but generally that it tends to not be the case. It tends to be people who are uh, much more, more patient with their listener and who can really build that affinity, like you were saying, who can win them over. So I guess my question is, you know, right now, one of the, the big stories that we're seeing uh, it, just repeatedly, multiple examples of this on college campuses and in other contexts are protesters who are just shouting down speakers. They don't want to have civil debate. They don't want to have dialogue. They're just sort of shutting down anything that they disagree with. So when you're dealing with those kind of people, and I, I think unfortunately that's that mindset is spreading, uh, mm. especially amongst people under, let's say, 35 or, or under 40, um, how do you how do you reach that? I mean, or, or is it just an example? I mean, can it just be that some people aren't able to hear your message and you need to go to the people who are? Or is there a way to get through to these individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. And you kind of um, got kind of got to the answer there at the end of it. Uh, yes, that some people are not worth expending your time and energy. And you you never need more, really, than 10% of a society to get to critical mass, as long as it's actually pulling in the same direction, right? So I would not... <laughs> you can't force somebody to sit down and listen to you, <laughs> right? If um, for long enough that it's going to take to change a deliberately and consciously and specifically held paradigm that is absolutely rotten and wrong to the core, 
over like to change it by 180 degrees. Don't start there. Don't start with the social justice warriors that think that, let's say, physical violence is um, an acceptable response to conservative opinion because conservative opinion is itself a form of violence. Just for example, don't start there. What I would do there is, um, and I have started talking more and more about this on my show, actually, because it it really is uh, an issue of our time. Um, It's part of the political zeitgeist. Is um, you got to have a bit of faith here. Most people do not hold. Let's say most liberals, most progressives, are not. Um, they're not like gone. They haven't gone away and read Marx and have made a specific cognitive wholesale commitment to a paradigm. Most of us hold our political views kind of by default, much more loosely. Um, much more because we actually haven't heard a lot of competing views. Right. In other words, there's plenty of folks on the soft left who we can meet in the normal ways of finding common ground, which I discuss at length in in my seminars, for example, Um, that you can make them feel more like you and much less like those people, let's say, on the hard left, these social justice warriors that are doing this on the campuses right now, right? So, you know, be aware that it's actually not too difficult, I think, if you get the common ground with the soft left to show, for them to see, to show them that the hard left is much more like let's say, much more like the fascists that they're uh, supposedly um, railing against than they are like those folks on the soft left. And and if that's hard to believe, read George Orwell. Um, it's really fascinating that since Trump came in, uh, 1984 has been flying off the shelves, right? Um, and the people who've been buying it have been a lot of these folks on the left who think that Trump is, um, you know, the rise of fascism in uh, the US. Now, we can debate that. But George Orwell, uh, in 1940, wrote an essay called something like My Country Left or Right, or or something like that. Um, And he actually called out uh, the anti-patriots and the communists, um, who he had thought were his allies, as being so caught up in their own righteousness, he actually uses the word enlightenment, um, that they can't appreciate good human sentiment, including in that essay um, he was talking about patriotism. And so he actually identified, um, he said, you know, as as an international socialist, I identify with the humanity of the moderates and not anymore with the hard uh, politics. The, he didn't use the word, but basically the authoritarianism of the hard left. And actually, it was that sensibility out of which the book 1984 came, right? I mean, you know, some animal, animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. I mean, that's clearly a statement at the expense of the authoritarian left. That's a statement made by George Orwell, a self-identified international socialist. So, you know, if even Orwell could see it, right, if even the guy whose books are flying off the shelf because they're being bought by the social justice warriors, if even he could see the danger of the social justice warrior hard left, then, uh, you know, be aware of the difference, of the difference between these people you're asking me about and most people who are kind of softly or, as I say, by default liberal. Yeah, there are so many things that those of us who are against authoritarianism, whether it's a kind of conservative or, a, you know, let liberal in quotes, um, flavor. Yeah. We can just calmly say back to them the principles that they claim to motivate them and link them to the behaviors that we are seeing from the authoritarian left. And you know, it may not change their minds, but it will help change the minds of the soft, softer left who are, um, 
who are, you know, who they're alienating, frankly. One of the things you talk about in your new book, uh, If You Can Keep It, which I believe came out in 2016, you, you talk about the, the issue of uh, foreign policy and, and perception. And I think it's kind of the same thing with what we're talking about now, with how people uh, perceive themselves. So you have all these individuals who, uh, most of whom identify with, with the left, going out and buying 1984, like you, like you just discussed. Uh, in your book, you talk about how Keep, uh, how Americans tend to not really have any grasp of how they're perceived by the rest of the world. And so your your website that you mentioned earlier, Watching America, what you do is you take uh, foreign language news about the United States from the foreign press and translate it into English, which is really a, a, a great service, I think, that could, uh, in, could and should be informing the American media, although it, it, tragically, I, I don't think they're paying too much attention to that, but, but they should be. Uh, so, but, but, but the point is, you, you know, you're, you're talking about how there's a, a massive disconnect between the way people perceive themselves, or in this case, how Americans perceive themselves, and how they're perceived by everybody else. And I think it's sort of the same thing with what, uh, what we're, we're talking about here. Do you, do you see overlap there, and, and how would that tie in? Let me see if I understand your question. I mean, the reason I talk about that is, you know, if you want to, if you want to do good, you have to know the impact uh, of what you're doing, whatever the intention is, right? I mean, in a marriage, this is um, this is obvious, right? Uh, if you have a, a relationship with someone that you care about, uh, how they're reacting to you, whatever their reasons for reacting the way they're they're reacting, even if they're not good. Has a has a material impact on the effect of whatever you're doing, and if you want to get to a certain end, you need to take it into account. It's no good just kind of uh, kind of pretending to rise above it out of uh, because you're more right than the next guy. Now, the link, if I, if this is what you're asking me, um, yes, there is a link here because that's always true. It's all it's true if you're trying to persuade somebody of um, of a political point of view. And it's also true in foreign policy, right? Uh, because I might be doing some action for a particular result, but because I don't know the context properly in which my action is being perceived and responded to. Um, so if I'm dropping bombs in Iraq and I don't know anything about Iraq, then I can't predict the outcomes. So I have to be essentially empirical. I have to look at what my uh, my actions are causing, and then I have to test the actual results um, with an open mind against my stated intent. And, um, you know, and we have to do that in political persuasion just as in foreign policy. And indeed, one might say that foreign policy is itself a form of political persuasion, I guess, right? In the most extreme sense, yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, along those lines, you know, when, when we're thinking about how we can find common ground with both people on the, the left and the, and the right, uh, who are not libertarian in different ways and for different reasons, what do we need to know about their psychology? About the, the, the because I mean, one of the things that that I've learned, and I'm certainly no psychology expert, but people tend to make emotional decisions and then try to find uh, intellectual justification right. for those decisions, right? And so, I mean, that's that's the same thing in in sales. It's the same thing in, in right. marketing and persuasion and anything of the sort. So, what is the psychology behind 
the left and what is the psychology behind the right and how can libertarians utilize that knowledge to reach these individuals on the kind of emotional wavelength that they would understand. Right. Okay. So, um, and I mean, that's, you know, I can't, I, I've written a book about that kind of, and this is, I give a whole day training to candidates and activists answering really exactly this question. Uh, so I'm only going to, I can only kind of touch on it here just for lack of time, but it's, a, it's obviously the most important question. So um, the first thing to say is, um, it's really to emphasize something that you just said. Um, and I would put it this way. Judgment and justification are different processes. The reasons we form our judgments are not the reasons we give after we form them, formed them for having them, right? Um, now, we all sincerely believe that the reasons we give for our positions are why we have the positions. But we know that's not true. We form judgments for a myriad of reasons, and many of those reasons are subconscious. We don't even know they are motivating us in moving towards a certain judgment or political opinion. Now, one that we do know, it's kind of ubiquitous among all human beings, even the most kind of, um, uh, you know, rational uh, human beings, and libertarians, by the way, are kind of high on the rational analysis scale when it comes to opinion forming, but they're not immune to this by any means. Something we all do in forming our political opinions is we subconsciously are trying to maintain moral standing among those who we identify as our constituents. And I don't mean constituents in kind of a strictly political sense, but um, our kind of moral constituents, our immediate community, so our friends and our family. So be aware, if you're trying to persuade someone, if you're conservative and you're trying to persuade a liberal, that if that liberal agrees with you, especially if it's a kind of an argumentative interaction, then what's really at stake potentially is this person's relationships with all of their liberal friends, right? It's the face that they potentially lose when all of the conversations that they've ever had arguing against what you're now convincing them of gets thrown back at them. Yeah. So we have our, our prevailing political paradigm, our prevailing judgments are very sticky. Now, um, of course, liberals and conservatives and libertarians and other folks, we have uh, different paradigms. So with that in mind about everybody, we could say about liberals specifically that the, and I'm, I'm crassly approximating, but that a lot of progressive politics is really the politics of good intention, right? So if you want to persuade somebody on the left, then you, what you will do is reflect back and affirm the intention that drives their politics, Right now, you may think that the good intention, the intention, let's say, to reduce poverty should lead them in a libertarian direction. And um, whereas it's leading them in, say, a welfare statist direction. But don't go to the disagreement. Go to the agreement. Go to, especially to the fundamental agreement, which in this case would be the agreement um, about good intention, where we're trying to get to. Right. So you spend a lot more time establishing trust on. Um, I also want fewer poor people. Right. I also want more justice. If you're feeling really brave, you could even be all about social justice because you could find common ground on social justice without conceding a particular meaning of that. Right. But just by even going there, you're showing respect for the paradigm. You're basically telling this person that if I invite this um, this guy that I'm speaking to into my intellectual space, I haven't got anything to fear. 
right? He's not threatening my identity, really, or my, yeah, he's not threatening my political identity. Um, so whoever you're talking to, you want to spend um, a lot more time finding the common ground than focusing on the, on the disagreement. And a rule of thumb is you know that you've found that you've spent enough time establishing trust on the common ground when the person you're talking to is actually asking you for your opinion. If you give an opinion before it's asked, 99 times out of 100, you're not actually going to change somebody's mind. Now, generally, um, where is the common ground? Well, if it's not obvious, if you don't know somebody very well, uh, use the old salesman's adage, which is if you shut up for long enough, your customer will tell you how to sell them. You know, people give of themselves in communication. So if you're into persuading, um, as much of it is about listening persuasively, if that makes sense, rather than even talking persuasively. So there are many pieces to it. Um, but a lot of it is getting out of your own way, getting enough out of getting your ego disinvested from what you believe so that you can hear what this person is telling you about what concerns them, especially if what they're about to tell you is an injustice. They People perceive different injustices, but everybody in all contexts, in all cultures, is moved politically by an injustice. So listen for the injustice that moves the person you're speaking to, and then apply your philosophy to that. Uh, I love this advice. The question that keeps coming in my mind is, okay, what what advice do you have for those who have a very hard time hurtling over all the obstacles to you know, trigger words like social justice? You know, in a conversation with someone who is all about social justice, it's very hard sometimes to sort of get into that frame of mind without even a, even ignoring the fact that you don't have to adopt their definition of it. Or to, to be more specific, a lot of people on the left have sort of a, a feeling that, well, no one should go without health care. And we should have some, we, we meaning whatever country or society you live in, we should have some way of covering everybody in some way. And, and I realize that, you know, most people think single, most people on the left think it's single payer. What happens if as a libertarian, there's no, there's no sense in which uh, many libertarians feel this way. They don't believe that there's any obligation for we, whoever we are, to make sure that everyone has adequate health care. So identifying with somebody who you kind of disagree with on that level has to be hurdled over. What kind of advice do you have for that? You've got to make your psychological world or universe bigger than your own psychological experience. So um, now this is something that Jonathan Haidt is brilliant. Go and read The Righteous Mind on this because it will really help. Um, Haidt identifies uh, six moral dimensions. Now what he means by this is if you go to any culture in the world that exists in any kind of political spectrum, moral statements can always be understood in terms of six spectra. So for example, moral spectrum, uh, moral uh, statements concern um, justice versus injustice. They concern caring for someone versus harming them. They concern uh, freedom versus, uh, you know, suppression and um, loyalty versus disloyalty and, and so on, right? So there's four, there's four. I've just listed four of them. Now, libertarians live in um, a much more mono-dimensional moral universe. If they think that anything that, um, anything is necessarily good if it promotes freedom and is necessarily bad if it limits it. But they are just one moral, have just one moral psychological uh, profile. 
right? There are other people that would say, well, okay, sure, liberty uh, versus uh, suppression or domination is one moral dimension, but if an outcome of your liberty is that harm gets done to people, then your moral universe is incomplete. Now, a libertarian could just deny that axiomatically, but he needs to know that he's just denying it axiomatically. And the reason he feels comfortable doing that is because his moral psychology is different, maybe, from the progressive. Um, progressivism uh, basically exists, uh, is actually also quite unidimensional, monodimensional morally. It exists on the care versus harm spectrum. I think in the book, Haidt even says that there's an advantage politically for those who have more foundations, uh, more, I think he calls them taste receptors in, in sort right. of an analogy, that the politicians who can speak all of those different languages, if you think of them as you know, different sort of foundational languages of care and harm and uh, liberty right. versus tyranny and the other ones that are, I'm drawing a blank on right now, when you have a politician who can speak all of those languages to all of his or her constituents, they're, they're going to have the advantage. So the same, it sounds like what you're saying is the same is true when we have an argument or a debate or discussion or, or what we might perceive as those things with somebody, we're not going to have an advantage if we can't begin to sort of speak all those different languages. Right. That's, ex that's exactly right. You know, this is this whole point about intellectual humility and, you know, and making the decision as to what is it you're trying to achieve. Um, because within your paradigm, you're going to win every argument, right? but that's not the game. Uh, so this throwing the net wide is, um, yeah, is important. Uh, you've got to learn. You've got to learn the other. If what you want is to increase liberty in this country, if that's what you really want, rather than to have an ego trip. So considering uh, our audience here at Libertarian Christian Podcast and, and whoever may be listening in, as you're out in your, in your churches, in your communities, and you're talking to other Christians who are not Libertarian, I think a way to apply what Robin is talking about is you have to consider these these people aren't your your enemies. These are your your brothers and sisters, and they, for whatever reason, are seeing things differently than you. So maybe ways that common ground can be drawn is: uh, Do you both care about the the kingdom of God? Do you care about honoring Jesus? Do you care about loving the world? Do you care about helping the poor? Uh, do you care about peace and prosperity for uh, families and, and churches and communities and building civilization. I, I think in in almost every case you're you're going to find the answer is yes. You both care about these things, but you have a difference on how you're approaching the issue. And in many right. cases, uh, like even even theologically, seems to be one of the the biggest areas we run into as libertarian Christians is people have a different uh, way of interpreting the Bible or interpreting theology than, than we may. Um, and that, that can't be won by beating somebody over the head. It has to be won by finding out why they think a certain way and then drawing that connection. And I think the reason that many Christians are not libertarian, it's a mix of theology and the reason that non-Christians are not libertarians, which is just political philosophy and emotion and everything else. So I think it's kind of a, it's a mix of those two things that sort of combine in a, in a perfect storm. Uh, that that erroneously lead many Christians into some form of statist thinking, whether it be 
progressive or neoconservative or or what have you. Now, Robin, one of your close associates is Jeffrey Tucker, and Jeffrey is Roman Catholic, and he is a great Christian libertarian. He's one of my favorite people in the movement. Tell us a little bit about your work with him and how you think that liberty can promote the flourishing of the human condition and the growth of civilization, all these kind of things that that a Christian audience might put a lot of value on. I'm going to use this question, <laughs> and you're bringing up Jeffrey as an excuse to uh, talk about something that a lot of uh, interviewers have asked me about that's kind of an important bit of my thinking, um, and indeed my book, um, which is and it should be particularly important to Christians. Uh, and I'm thinking now of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Um, the greatest of these is love. I ask the question, what would a politics of love be? And what would that even mean? And I, for me, it was a big aha moment to realize that Liberty is love politicized in this respect, that love wants for its object what it wants for itself. And liberty is about setting up a society and a system that um, more than accommodates that, but certainly reflects that, that expresses that, that is that. And Jeffrey Tucker and I came together, I think, on that ground. Uh and I've I also I also love Jeffrey because he is about he has written about um, libertarianism needing to be humane rather than brutalist, and I wrote something similarly, uh, but I kind of use different vocabulary where I was warning against uh, a libertarian orthodoxy or purism, i.e., making a religion out of the politics. Um, and one of the ways I encapsulate this as well as saying, you know, liberty is the politics of love, is the only legitimate ends of politics is people. And with that in mind, it is always possible, sometimes it's easier than at other times, but it's always possible to reformulate a political conflict as a, um, a shared problem uh, that we are approaching together, we're walking together towards a solution rather than facing each other off in an argument. Um, and that's about, you know, turning the zero sum game into really a, a positive uh, sum exploration. So, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> Jeffrey and I put out a book called Beauty and Truth, Friend, uh, Frank and Friendly Conversations on Being Human, that uh, really is just a, a transcript of eight or nine conversations that we have had together, um, inspired by this idea. And maybe inspired by isn't even the right word. I would maybe put it this way. When we came together originally as two kind of broadly libertarians, and we started to really explore why we believed what we believed, we found ourselves going to love. Because when you really get to it, uh, that's the root. That is the root. And it makes sense, right? Because <laughs> uh, love is truth. For your Christian audience, God is love. Um, how could it be anything else? How could it be anything other than to the extent that liberty is uh, the correct or the right or the best philosophy, uh, political philosophy, it must be reflective of love. I think Jeffrey, I know Jeffrey gets that very deeply. And I know we have uh, come together 
over that sentiment and that understanding. I think it's exciting that you have teamed up with Jeffrey Tucker on such an important endeavor. When you were in one of the conversations with Jeffrey I was listening to this week, one of the questions you asked was, how can we promote liberty for the purpose of human flourishing? And that phrase, human flourishing, is, I want to say it in a way, it's an all-encompassing term. It has all, It's very loaded in one sense, but it also has a lot of meaning uh, in another. Yeah, th- this is really this is really important because there are some um, folks that 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 Jeffrey would call the brutalist libertarians. That kind of they have their philosophy right. He calls it a kind of false constructivism, right? They have this idea of a principle, so the non-aggression principle, and that's kind of is supposed to answer every question. And so they pay no attention to the actual institutions, the actual kind of historical accidents that we live with, the practicalities of life, the things that are beautiful in life, and the way that we as human beings respond to them. And I and I think. That is a reason why a lot of libertarians have failed to be compelling, because in just kind of banging on about like this kind of constructed philosophy, they fail to reflect back to people their own experience of life. And they fail to reflect back to people um, what moves those people, what excites those people. Right. Nobody's going to listen to a curmudgeon who complains about the government coming to take his guns all the time. Right. And, and indeed, or even to somebody who doesn't complain, but just does kind of rational philosophy and says everybody should obviously agree because, you know, here's the axiom and here's, here's your political philosophy that falls right out of it. Because it just doesn't engage the human experience. And I would say more broadly, and this goes to an, a question you asked me earlier, if you want to know how to persuade people, you don't get them to understand you. You get them to see that you understand them. Trump won because, and Nigel Farage and Brexit won, right, as all political insurgents do, by showing people, reflecting people back to themselves, right? Now, here's here's a huge political takeaway. When the political mainstream does not reflect a concern back to a population, and then somebody comes along who does, not telling them what they should believe, not telling them what's right, right, but just saying essentially, you have this concern and I get it and I have it too. And the folks who hear you say that actually believe that you feel the same about it. You're not just saying it, but they, you feel the same about it. Then they will start to agree with you. If you say a problem back to them, if you, if you, you know, say a problem, you identify a problem and you speak it to them and they go, yeah, that's what I've been feeling. And nobody else is saying that they're going to pretty much believe what you say next as the solution without actually doing a rational analysis of whatever the solution is. Now, you could say, well, that's a bit dangerous or a bit scary, but it's human nature. So Trump wins like that. Nigel Farage and Brexit wins like that. Um, and we have to win like that, you know. And there's nothing there's nothing um, dishonest about it because we're not going to lie that we're doing it. We're going to recognize that if we care enough about these principles that we're even in the space having political arguments, that we're even talking about liberty, that we're even talking about love, that the only purpose of doing that is to try and make things better. And we have a choice as to whether whether to be effective communicators or less effective ones. And we choose to be more effective, which means that we engage people with their um, on an emotional level as well as a rational level. We understand and uh, we try and learn about the process of judgment formation, even in as much as it is nothing to do with the process of justifying the judgments after we formed them. Right. Let's get good at it. That's a choice. 
As we begin to wrap up, I think some questions that maybe some of our listeners may have is, what are what are some good or maybe some examples of some really bad cliches or arguments or tacks to take with with respect to trying to convert people? You know, a couple that come to mind are things like you know, taxation is theft. You know, there's that hashtag and. Yeah. Um, there's some there's some other examples. Do you have some personal favorites that if if you have to you know only a few moments to help someone just rethink and retweak? You know, what what kind of advice do you have? What cliches should we completely avoid? Or and I don't want to call them cliches because they may actually be effective. Um, actually, the taxation is theft is a really good one, and I actually am the communications director for an organization called Tax Revolution Institute that is actually advocating making the volu- the, the the quote voluntary unquote tax system actually voluntary. It's a campaign that I was massively involved in creating, and I will never say taxation is theft. It's make so voluntary st- voluntary again. Yeah, the, the, our tagline. If you go to taxrevolution.us, the line is making quote voluntary unquote taxation voluntary. And the, and the punchline is, what if the government had to earn your money? Now, actually, that's a really good thing to do as well. Um, practice this. Formulate every uh, political assertion as a question. Like, that's actually, if you want to get good at persuasion, turn every statement you want to make into a question. These are and that's very t- Socratic, isn't it? It's Socratic questioning. You learn right. to turn things into it, questions, and nobody can accuse you of making a statement they disagree with because you just ask them a question. Right, and we understand more now than it was understood in Socrates' days why that's so effective. Um, it turns out that the mind treats jet differently things that it believes is one's own from those that it believes is not is belongs to somebody else, and that works with uh, possessions. It works with. Um, land, and it works even with ideas. So if you can get someone to an idea such that the last step is one where the they kind of get it, it's their idea, then you're, you're going to be a lot more effective. So yeah, no, avoid the taxation is theft. I, you know, avoiding the idea that that there simply is one theory out of which every polit- uh, political answer drops. You know, that's a kind of a meta thing that libertarians get wrong all the time. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, uh, I mean, avoid that. But avoid the voc- avoid the uh, vocabulary that you know triggers the people that you're talking to. Um, so, you know, if I'm talking to a conservative, I'm not going to say I'm for social justice. And if I am uh, talking to a progressive... Um, I will talk, let's say, I'll use terms like the Constitution differently from if I'm talking to a conservative, right? Because all of these words have have triggers, um, and the, or they, they are triggers, and what they trigger changes with time, and it changes among political communities. Be sensitive to that. So, and also you can flip it on its head. If you're talking to a progressive, you may not mean by welfare what he means, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't use the word. You should use the word because then you can be on the same side of a discussion talking about what actually welfare really is, what actually is for the human good, right? Use the word. It gets you on side. It shows kind of respect for their vocabulary, their views. Whereas a lot of conservatives just won't do it. Oh, I'm not going to use that word. Oh, welfare. I'll be precisely because they're being triggered by it because they're on the other side. Um, so there's, I mean, there are so many techniques and this is why I give these kind of day long seminars because you can, there are so many. And, and you know what? Just generally, most fundamentally, never impugn somebody's intent, integrity, or, um, or intelligence. 
unless you're absolutely 110% sure. You've got to typically know a lot more about someone than you than you usually know um, when you're having a political argument with them to be able to call into question their intelligence or their morality. Nobody has ever been sold anything by a salesman who they know disrespects them morally or in terms of their intelligence. So don't do it. Just stop. Everybody stop. And and sometimes we don't do it explicitly, but we do do it in the way we talk, especially libertarians again, right? Because we're all the rational ones. And there you are just being emotional. And we kind of condescend to that. Well, well, don't, you know, stop condescending, stop intellectually. How do you advise people to stop doing that? I mean, I work with people who are constantly me, constantly maligning Donald Trump or, you know, way, way back when they were constantly maligning George W. Bush. And yeah. so they're on the left. So how do we other than, you know, you're you're speaking to libertarians here at this in this audience generally. And, and you're kind of like, hey, guys, let's cut it out. But if you're in a debate with somebody who just is maligning this third character that you're talking about, especially mostly politicians that they don't like, what how do we how do we address that and kind of well, call them out like- on it in a friendly way? This comes back to, you know, you've got to listen. Are they at least trying to engage the issue or are they basically doing massive identity politics, right? So, okay, this guy, this is Trump or this guy likes Trump. Therefore, you know, and he's a bogeyman. He's bad. Therefore, he's a fascist. Therefore, he's, you know, if, if what's going on is um, some political entity, let you know, like Trump is basically just a hook for people to hang their anger on, then what's really being worked out here is, you know, is is different from maybe in a more uh, a calmer, results oriented political debate. So listen for that. As I say, don't waste time on people that are kind of raging. If the gap is too far, just go to the next person. We don't need to win them all. We only basically need ten percent. Those folks, let them rage. Like let them get it out. Often is um, helpful. And then just listen for those little bits that you can agree with, and agree with them. Um, I mean, if you're going to spend the time, you've got to at least to do that. You've got to at least make it clear that you're not a partisan for whatever they're a partisan against. Because most of, as I say, politics is identity politics. So what you can't do is immediately put yourself in the conflicting identity box, right? Um, so, I mean, you know, that takes a lot of work, but the same principles, uh, the, the same principles apply. And also, you know, when you find that common ground, actually say something honest about why it's true to you. Like say something personal about how you connect to whatever that one thing in the hundred that they said is also right for you so that they can hear the authenticity. They can see the personal connection with it. And why would you do it? What's going to make you good at it? Um, Well, a couple of things. If you actually listen to people for that in that way, you're going to learn something. You're going to improve your philosophy. Uh, you're going to um, get the information that you need to be more effective at changing people's minds for liberty. Um, well, first of all, you want to be more effective because that's the only way we're going to get more liberty. And secondly, it's actually a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun to get good at it. It's a lot more fun to shut up, to listen, to understand what it is you have to reflect back to someone of themselves that is also true to you. And then it turns out that you start to persuade people that you never thought you would, you could persuade because before you couldn't. There's a number of things to do here. There's lots of great books out there. And um, there's a lot more to be said about this. But those are good places to start. 
If our listeners are interested in picking up a copy of If You Can Keep It, your book, which I highly recommend, where should they go to do that? Hey, thank you for asking. Go to ifyoucankeepit.us, ifyoucankeepit.us, because if you pick up a copy there, I will personally send you a signed copy. If, however, for some reason you would rather have your copy not signed and you go to Amazon, uh, be sure that you get the right book, because my book is called If You Can Keep It why we nearly lost it and how we get it back. And at the time this was published, um, I think like a month earlier or a month later, another book of the same title but a different subtitle uh, came out. So the one you want is If You Can Keep It, Why We Nearly Lost It and How We Get It Back by Robin Kerner. But as I say, the easiest thing to do is just go to ifyoucankeepit.us and I will send you a signed copy. Fantastic. Thank you, Robin. And we will directly link both to your website and to the correct purchase point on Amazon as well. Another thing I would, that was just kind of coming to my mind is one of the things that Robin talks about in the end of his book, and he made some reference to it here earlier, is thinking of liberty as the politics of love. So as a Christian libertarian, as you're talking to other Christians about liberty, that's just a great way to phrase something is, is this a loving action? You know, I mean, Oftentimes, especially as as Christians, we sometimes are kind of wary when people talk about love because they they put a wrong spin on it, as if it just means, hey, do whatever you want, that's cool, there's no ethical standards in the world, just, you know, as long as you're doing your thing, you're fine. But as Christians, we understand that love is, like Robin said, seeking what's best for the person. So if you really want what's best for the person, if you want them to flourish, and as a Christian specifically, if you want them to know the joy and peace of the Lord, the answer probably isn't bombing them, uh, regulating them to death, invading their country, uh, and all these other, or stealing from them in order to finance the welfare state, whatever it may be. The answers are are voluntary. These are the things that actually encourage people to cooperate, to work together, to build society. And so framing it around that, how these these aggressive state actions that are supported by the voters are not, often not loving. They're, they're violent. They're coercive. They're destructive. They're not what the individual would want done to them if the roles were reversed. And I think phrasing it in that way is it's just a great way to reach people for liberty generally, and it definitely applies to Christian libertarians thinking, how can I reach other Christians with the message of liberty? Frame it around what is what is love, and Jesus is love. He's love incarnate, and if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's probably not a loving action. So that's all the time we have here today on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Robin, it was fantastic to have you. I learned a ton, and I'm sure many of our listeners did as well. Uh, If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, listeners, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and our main website, libertarianchristians.com. You can also donate to support the Libertarian Christian Podcast as we continue to bring you future episodes at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. 
The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.